James has been taking us through some issues that have grabbed us by the ears and picked us up by the ears as a congregation to get our attention. James has last week been pushing up against our presuppositions and our worldview that is not rooted in the Bible. Uh, James last week has identified the world system as the system of all things that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus Christ out. We've said last time in the word that uh, a boat in the water is not a problem, but water in the boat is a big problem. A Christian in the world system that leaves Jesus out is not a problem, but a world system that leaves Jesus Christ out in a Christian is a big problem. This morning, we're going to carry on in our study in the book of James to see what leads to humility for a Christian. What is the pathway to being humble as a believer, and why be humble? God is going to show us in these verses of James 4, 5 to 10, one of the reasons to be humble is to bail the water of the world system that leaves Jesus Christ completely out, to bail it out of our boat. If you are aware and cognizant that you have adopted some worldly ways, the way to bail the water out of your boat of worldliness is to have the bailing bucket of humility. That's the context of these verses that we're going to unpack quickly together this morning. Let me overview the eight pathways to humility that these verses paint. Very quickly, let me overview. First, that we accept God-given grace. I see that in verse 6. Second, submit ourselves to God, the first part of verse 7. Three, resist the devil, still in verse 7. Four, come near to God, verse 8. Five, wash our hands, still verse 8. Six, purify our hearts, still verse 8. Seven, grieve or be miserable over our sin. And eight, lower ourselves before God. I see that in verse 10. You want to bail the water of worldliness out of your life? Grab the bailing bucket of humility as identified by these avenues in these verses. Let me take them one by one quickly. I'm aware of the time. We need to unpack these eight practices or decisions to get humble so they won't be worldly. Number one, accept God-given grace, verses 5 and 6. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to be humble? then accept God-given grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the acrostic. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Of course, grace is involved in saving us. Grace is involved in keeping us secure in our salvation. And grace is involved in setting us apart. Grace is involved in sanctifying us. These verses are saying that we need to accept sanctifying grace once we are saved. Not to be proud and say, I don't need any more grace than salvation grace. No. To say in the journey of the Christian life, in all of its vicissitudes, all of its ups and downs, in the journey of the Christian life, I need sanctifying grace. I need sanctifying grace. If we would be humble, we would accept God-given grace. You know, the proud gets opposition from God. God loves us enough after salvation that if we persist in being proud, he's going to oppose that. But the humble Christian gets grace. 
That is to say, under the steeple of the church, the proud get hindrances, but the humble get help. Sanctifying grace helps us, it assists us, and it blesses us, and so we should accept it with humility. Alex Haley, who wrote the wildly best-selling book, Roots, has a picture in his office, I am told, a picture of a turtle on top of a fence post. When you ask Mr. Haley, what's that picture all about? He says, whenever I look at it, I remember that a turtle doesn't get on top of a fence post except he had help. You and I will never get to where God wants us to be except we accept his grace and help. Do you want to be humble? Good. Accept God's sanctifying grace for your daily life. There's a second way to humility in this passage, and it is this. Submit ourselves to God. Submit ourselves to God. That's a way to humility. Submit, I've taught you before, is a compound Greek verb, hupotasso. Hupo in Greek means under. Tasso means to stand. The person who is submitted stands under authority that is over him. Of course, the New Testament teaches that all born-again Christians are to submit to each other. Scripture also teaches us that wives are to submit to their Lord and in so doing, submit to their husbands. Husbands are told in the New Testament to submit to the Lord before we ever try to lead our wives. And here in James 4, 7, Christians of all ages, of all marital statuses, are told to submit to God, to submit ourselves to God. That's the will of God for us. That's part of how we humble ourselves. We are to gladly and decidedly and consistently stand under God's authority over us. That kind of a decision to submit ourselves to God goes a long ways to us becoming humble. George Washington, I'm told, when he was a schoolboy, wrote in his school notebook, Play Not the Peacock. Even as a young boy, George Washington, the future president of the United States, wrote in his little school ledger, play not the peacock. Washington understood the great value and importance and essentiality of being humble. Want to be humble? Good. Submit yourself to God. Choose to stand under God and his word. There's a third way to humility, to the bailing of the world system out of our boat. There's a third way to humility, and it is to resist the devil. Verse 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We are to resist the devil. The Greek verb tense here suggests the need for a decisive resistance, an urgent resistance. You know, if I get diagnosed with the HIV virus, then I'm going to have to be decisive to resist it. There's no cure for it. But if I don't resist the HIV virus and it gets to be AIDS, then I'm going to die. But if I resist the HIV virus by diet, if I'm a Christian, by prayer, by medication from a doctor, I might have a longer span of life than if I didn't resist the HIV virus. By the way, this Thursday is the HIV AIDS worship service here in Nassau. It's in your bulletins. I will be present to support the families who are suffering from HIV and AIDS to show them the love of Christ. Maybe you want to join me. 
Opposition to HIV is rooted in a decided resolve to try to prolong life and not to develop AIDS, to choose life over death, to pick activity over passivity. And we must pick, church, we must pick activity in resisting the devil than passivity. If we wait around to figure out, is the devil really an accuser? Is the devil actually a liar? Is the devil actually a murderer? It will be too late. We must resist the devil. That's what verse 7 says. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. On to more of baking a humble pie. But before I move off of resisting the devil, Dr. John MacArthur has written in one of his books a very interesting statement. Maybe it will be new to you as it was to me. All people are either under the lordship of Christ or the lordship of Satan. There is no middle ground. Those who transfer their allegiance from Satan to God will find that Satan will flee from them. He is a defeated foe. Yes, Satan is a defeated foe. Satan is on a tether, only as long a rope as God gives him. With Job, God gave a tether on Satan. says you can harass him, you can molest him, you can cause him great pain through loss, but you can't kill him. Satan was on a tether, and Satan continues to be on a tether. And when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. It's the tired Christian, the lazy Christian, the careless Christian, the wordless Christian, the prayerless Christian that he will continually harass. Don't want to be harassed by Satan? Resist him in humility and dependence on God. Whose lordship am I under? Whose lordship are you under? There's a fourth way to humility and thus to the huge blessing of our theme verse today, which is Psalm 25, verse 9. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. If you want to be led in justice, interesting, we launched a conciliation ministry, and that was done. Be- the theme was identified before we knew we were going to do that. Interesting that I'm working my way through James verse by verse, and we get to the passage on humility, and the theme verse that I didn't pick says, he leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. Well, guess what? If you walk into this sanctuary, and you are not humble, the word of God preached will do you no good unless you repent. If you make an appointment at the Christian Counseling Center, and you walk over there in pride, The counseling based on God's word will do you no good until you repent and get humble. What have we seen so far? We've seen, number one, we're to accept God-given grace to be humble. We're to submit ourselves to God to be humble. We're to resist the devil to be humble. But there's a fourth thing in the text. We are, fourthly, to come near to God. The first part of verse 8 is really precious. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Think of it, draw near to Almighty God, and he will draw near to you. Come near to God as a way to humility. That is remarkable when you think about the history of God with his people. Coming near to God, when Adam and Eve were untainted by sin, they did that. There they were in the Garden of Eden without sin, and they walked and talked with God every evening in the garden. They were no way afraid or awkward. They enjoyed God's fellowship, and God enjoyed their fellowship. But after sin polluted mankind and our planet, very few people even dare to attempt coming near to God. Have you noticed that? 
Moses tried to get near to God, and God hid Moses in the cliff rock's crevice to protect him from being consumed by God's glory. Israel as a nation tried to get near to God, and God instructed them to build a special tent and an ark for inside that special portable tent called the tabernacle. Israel as a nation again tried to get near to God, and God laid out blueprints for a temple with a holy of holies and said that priests could take turns going in the holy of holies, one approach per priest, per priest's lifetime, and the priest that got to go in there had two things put on him, bells on the hem of his priestly garment and a rope around his ankle. The bells, as long as they were ringing, they knew he was still alive and not struck dead by God, and if the bell stopped ringing and they knew he was struck dead by God, they hauled him out of the holy and holies by the rope because they couldn't go in. Oh, coming near to God hasn't always been very easy or wise. The two Marys at the Easter tomb tried to come near to God, but God forbid them from clinging on to his nail-pierced, resurrected feet. Coming near to God is quite a concept. And in James 4 here, it contends that we should decisively and urgently come near to God. And the marvel of marvels of grace and a completed Bible and a completed salvation that as we do come near to God, God won't hide us. God won't show us his back. God won't tell us to build a tent and an ark. God won't have a building of a temple and staffing it with professional approachers to God. God won't strike us dead and God won't forbid us from touching him. Quite the contrary. God will actually come near to us if we will come near to him. Wow. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Some years ago, several years ago, almost 20 years ago, back in March of 1998, Charles, the Prince of Wales, was in Whistler, British Columbia, Canada, on a skiing vacation with his young sons, William and Harry. And if you had happened to have been in Whistler, British Columbia, in that ski resort at the same time the Prince of Wales was, do you think you would have tried to sit beside the Prince of Wales on the same chairlift from the bottom of the ski mountain to the top? And if you did sit on the same bench of the ski lift beside the Prince of Wales, do you think you would have reached over and hugged him? Think he would have reached over and hugged you? No, the security guards and the police would have arrested you and taken you off to the big house. But what if little Prince Harry and little Prince William? Wait, Daddy, can I share that lift chair up to the top of the mountain with you? And they trundle over and they sit beside the Prince of Wales and they're tired from skiing. They're just little tykes and they rest their head, one on each shoulder of the Prince of Wales. Do you think he would have shooed them away? Do you think he would have put his head on theirs and had a little time with them? Of course he would have because he's their daddy. And their mommy was dead by that point. You know, it's not amazing that an earthly prince would hug us his sons, but it's totally amazing that the King of Kings would draw near to us when we draw near to him. Humility, it's the bailing bucket in our boat if the water of the worldliness has taken into our boat. We've seen so far to be humble is to accept God's given grace, to submit ourselves to God, 
to resist the devil, to come near to God. But there is more. There is a fifth road to humility, and it is wash our hands. Wash our hands. Still in verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. What does that mean, to cleanse our hands as sinners? Well, why do we wash our hands before meals? Because our hands handle a lot of life between our meals, and handling a lot of life is dirty, germ-filled work. Sinners like me and you are to wash our hands because we live a lot of life between church services. Between now and the next time we will gather in Jesus' name here in this building to worship the Lord, you all will sin, and so will I. And what will we do when we sin? Really, we have two options. We will do nothing or we will confess our sin. We will do nothing or we will confess our sin. If we choose to do nothing about our sin, then we're going to get proud and worldly and dirty hands. And the longer we do nothing, the more proud, worldly, and dirty our hands will get. No sermon will do you any good until you repent if you have dirty hands, unconfessed sin. No counseling session across the parking lot, although rooted in Scripture, will do you any good if you have known dirty hands and you don't clean your hands and confess your sin. But if we do confess our sins, then God is faithful. He's not fickle. And God is just. He has judicial basis upon which to forgive us. This is like hand washing. Pride and worldliness and dirt all go down the drain as you agree with God and call your sin, sin. There's a sixth way to humility. It's to purify our hearts, to purify our hearts. Still in verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We are to purify our hearts. What does a piano teacher want her student to be like? What does a piano teacher want her student to have? Focus, determination, practice, diligence. The piano teacher wants a student who asks this question, why can't I become a great piano player? On the other hand, the piano student who continually asks, why can't I quit? That was our kids. Why can't I quit? That piano student is defeated before they really ever start. Or put another way, the piano teacher wants a student who is pure of heart toward the piano. Having a pure heart translates into practice and commitment and effort and concentration and loyalty when it comes to the piano or when it comes to righteousness. When the last part of verse 8 exhorts us to purify our hearts, you double-minded, it calls us to a purity of heart with respect to humility and righteousness before God. Will you notice, please, that the pure heart is a choice that we make? Doubt that? 
Doubt that having a pure heart involves a choice that you make? Well, I ask you this if you doubt that. Why would James 4, 5 command, purify your hearts, you double-minded, unless double-minded Christians can choose renewed motives, thoughts, desires, and loyalties? Choose them. Piano proficiency involves purity of one's heart toward the piano. Humility involves purity of one's heart toward God and his word. Oh, our humble pie is coming along nicely. We've got six ingredients of eight put in the pie before we bake it. The seventh way to humility, the seventh part of a bailing bucket to get the water of the world out of our boat The next place, seventh, is grieve our sins. Some translations say be miserable over our sins. You want to be humble? Good. Listen to verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, and your joy to gloom. Boy, these terms sound like a funeral home. Be miserable. Grieve, mourn, weep, gloom. I'm here to tell you from personal experience that humble Christians are broken Christians. I was never a humble person until God broke me. I had to be broken to be fixed. There are believers, unbroken believers, who have never been rocked to their core by their own capacity to sin. There are unbroken believers who see someone else's sin, point the finger, and said, I'd never do that. A broken, humble Christian points to a person who is sinning and say, God, help me, but for the grace of God, I would be doing that. Jesus spoke to this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 4, when he said this interesting reality, blessed, literally happy, are those who mourn, M-O-U-R-N, who mourn, for they will be comforted. Proud Christians are unbroken Christians. They are believers who have never, ever been rocked by their own capacity to sin. These unrocked children of God need to trade their laughing for some mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, according to verse 9 again. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Some years ago, you may have heard of the Toronto Airport Blessing. It was a local church affiliated with the Vineyard Movement, a charismatic movement, the Toronto Airport uh, Vineyard Blessing. They got so far off the track of God's word that they encouraged their people to worship by barking like dogs and by uncontrolled laughter. They became so extreme in their charismatic theology that the vineyard movement kicked them out. The Toronto Airport blessing. People whipped up into a frenzy in a worship service and asked to bark like dogs. People asked to laugh hysterically about nothing as worship. I would submit that those were unbroken Christians. 
And an important question or two should have been asked of them. Have you grieved your sins? Have you become miserable over your sins? You see, humble Christians are unworldly Christians, and humble and unworldly Christians grieve their own sins. Their own sins make these people miserable. Proud Christians don't have any misery over sin. Solomon, moved of God the Holy Spirit, wisely wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, it is better to go to a house of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take this to heart. That is startling. This verse is saying that funeral homes are superior to banquet halls because more is learned near a coffin than on a dance floor. Church family, our sin should sober us. Our sin should shake us. Until our sin is confessed and we experience forgiveness, our unconfessed sin should make us miserable. When it doesn't, we are stepping away from the Lord in pride. And we are stepping into the world as water coming into our boat. Humble people, humble Christians are broken by their own capacity to sin. The eighth and final ingredient in our humble pie, number eight, is lower ourselves before God, lower ourselves before God. Really coming to a bottom line of humility should not surprise us in this passage. In all of the previous verses, they've given us very specific ways that Christians can bake humble pie and have humility as a lifestyle. But what really is striking about verse 10 is that it says that we actually can humble ourselves. We can actually humble ourselves. Humility is a reflexive Virtue. That is, humility is something which we can decide to do to ourselves. And of course, when we do so, we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior's footsteps of self-humiliation. Think about it. The incarnation, the baptism of John, the scorn of his townspeople in Nazareth, the washing of the disciples' feet, the pre-cross abuse, the cross's shame and torture. Jesus Christ consciously calculatedly lowered himself before his father God. If you have time to read Philippians 2, 5 to 11, I commend that to you this afternoon. But brother or sister in Christ, in wrapping this up, do you want to avoid worldliness? Do you want to be humble? You can make that choice by lowering yourself. What would that look like? What would it look like for you to lower yourself? Let me get specific. Let someone else get the credit. Allow misplaced blame to rest on you. Be okay with that. Don't insist on going first. Listen more than you talk. Pray your will be done to the Lord rather than, Lord, please give me thus and so. Stop defending your own reputation. Share your material wealth. Be a servant. By the way, you know when you're a servant? 
when you don't get angry when someone else treats you like their servant. Volunteer to do something. Expecting no monetary gain. Just volunteer to do something, inside or outside of the church. Stop putting others down to put yourself up. Depend on Christ for everything. Say, I can't, but he can. And so the choice is mine, and the choice is yours. We're either going to elevate ourselves or lower ourselves. And the world system that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ out of everything says, elevate yourself. And the word of God, which is the will of God, whispers, lower yourself. Lower yourself. How to bake humble pie has been our topic this morning. It isn't natural, it's supernatural. It isn't cultural, it's countercultural. It isn't easy, it's hard, but it's profitable. And it honors God. And it's the essential combatant to worldliness. So, I'm a little boat, and you're a little boat. God made us little boats to be in the sea of the world. But sometimes, if we're careless, we're prayerless, if we're selfish, we're proud, we let the sea into our boat. Be careful. No boat has ever sunk instantly. Even the Titanic didn't sink instantly. And if there's worldliness in your life, start bailing. While there's still time, start bailing by pursuing humility. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Make us a humble people. Make us a humble church. Make us humble mates. Make us humble parents. Make us humble workers. Make us humble employers. Make us humble. For your honor and for your glory's sake, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.